Hebrew word is Kadesh, and it's a, well, it's a word that means more than its definition. But its definition is something that's different. Um, it's something that is unique, and not just unique, but profoundly unique, distinct like anything else. To review, the book of Isaiah, the word Isaiah means, what, did I hear? Salvation? Who, who or what is salvation? Okay, God. Okay, we'll go. Okay, okay, now let's see. We've talked about this a couple weeks. Okay, I'm going to have fun with you a little bit, but I'm going to take a shot. Okay, Isaiah is the book that we're studying. The name Isaiah means God is salvation or Yahweh is salvation. So the next time I like go, what does Isaiah mean? You'll say, yay, look at that. That's cool. See how easy that works? Okay, let's get into the text today. In the year that King Uzziah died. Okay, page 571, verse 1, chapter 6, Isaiah. The time that King Uzziah dies, we're not exactly sure. We're kind of sure it's 740-ish, BC-ish, maybe 739, 735. But, 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 but this chapter, starting off this way, articulating this time of transition. And, and then very quickly you get into this chapter and, and thinking people throughout, well, especially academic scholarship, have wondered why wouldn't you have chapter 6 as chapter 1? Because chapter 6 is just like crazy amazing. At any rate, there's this time in the year that King Uzziah died. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. At a time of transition, the nation of Israel, whom they thought the king was, and whom the next king will be, really aren't the things that are important in God's economy of things. Now, in a way that I cannot explain, much less understand, God has interacted with, used, or walked away from rulers and kings and dictators and presidents and prime ministers. He's done this throughout human history. Now, now some of these rulers have been capable of much good, but, but frequently they have engaged in tragedy and evil of some sort or another. And yet God's overall plan, his march through history, is not thwarted by these individual rulers or even these collective rulers, the kings, the rulers of the world that have always been and always will be, are at best maybe a good middle-level manager, and at worst, the epitome of a bad middle-level manager. The rulers that the nation of Israel thought were so important really aren't. Isaiah anchors us with this perspective. In the year that the king died, I saw the sovereign. Another way of saying it. In the year the king died, I saw the true king alive. It's a perspective that we would be wise to embody as we think about the rulers who we think are our guys or not our guys, but who will, like every other ruler before them, soon be gone. In the year that King Uzziah died, 
I saw the Lord, the sovereign, the true king, sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, it's an impressive vision, okay? First off, it absolutely takes the air out of the room, okay? Isaiah's best perspective, and the text doesn't tell us, but but I got to believe that it's something like this. He sees this vision, and then he's down like this, because he's just like, you're like, what in the world is this? I mean, it's just like, or it's something like this, where you're, you see this vision, and all of a sudden, you literally feel the air being drawn out of your lungs. You're like, <gasps> this amazing picture. Now, in contrast to the preceding five chapters, this is not a chapter dealing with men exalting themselves. In the year that the king that you thought was king died, the true king was on the throne. In fact, he was in the temple. Now, literally the word isn't temple. Literally the word is big house. (laughs) It's like he's in this great, big, huge house, this big, big, big space. And we have this picture of God being exalted as opposed to people trying to exalt themselves. And we have this picture of God that is so profoundly different than any picture we've seen of God up to this point in the biblical record. High and lifted up, the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. This unique experience that Isaiah recreates for us. The seraphim, three sets of wings covering the face, the view is here that, that, that even these angelic beings wouldn't dare to look on God. Two with which they covered their feet. Feet probably of euphemism for private parts, so a sense of modesty, okay? And then finally, two wings with which they would use for motion, for movement. A unique experience Isaiah is relating to us that we can share in. A description that is profoundly distinct. God is profoundly distinct. Kadesh. What God knows, what God does, how God acts, how God exists. As we think about what this text is attempting to communicate to us, the words really defy any comparison. Because any comparison is going to be less than who God is. Although Isaiah admits through the voice box of the angelic beings, the whole earth is full of his glory. Humans, animals, birds, fish, octopus, even sheeps. This last week, you know, I was watching the, the ice slowly recede, right? And, and there were swans and geese on the water. And I was watching with my binoculars. And I thought to myself, why do we like swans but not geese? I mean, they're roughly the same bird. Slightly different coloring. You're like, oh, yeah, but the geese walk up on my lawn. And yeah, but, you know, that's nature. It's just, if geese didn't do that, they wouldn't be healthy. Healthy. 
The angelic beings through Isaiah's pen describe this situation, this reality, that if you are paying attention, you will see God revealed in the sunrise or the sunset or the midnight blue sky, in the little critters that occupy the world around us. For some of us, it takes nothing more than a chickadee to remind us that God is. And in being God, God is profoundly distinct and worthy of exaltation, worthy of respect, worthy of honor. But the crazy thing in all of this is that what the God does is, is he wants to broker a relationship with us. He reveals himself to us and says, be my friend. Now, it's important to note that creation is not God, but points to God. And then this picture, okay, the continuing image, the the vision, and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And, And the house was filled with smoke. The foundations shake, not due to weather phenomena, but simply the voice of those who engage in an antiphonal volley of words. It's, it's smoke, it's filling, or there's smoke, there's fire. It's this multi-sensory assault on Isaiah. And it's one of those things that Isaiah would be unlikely to forget. And it would probably give Isaiah all that he would need to exist for the rest of his life on a pathway that follows God. I think we've had experiences like that. Maybe not that would rank to be recorded in the canon, but those experiences that were so real for us, a point in time where we said yes to God, And that memory of that event renews itself and renews our vibe, renews our energy, renews our passion to follow God with everything that we have. And sometimes, sadly, we forget those times. And sometimes they happen when we were very young. Sometimes they've happened in middle age. Sometimes they've happened at the end of our life. But it's so easy to forget those signature moments in our life where God was so real. Isaiah relates one to us. And if you're at a place in your life where you've never had that moment, where God was so real in such a powerful way, ask. Ask. The text goes on, verse 5. And I said, Isaiah's words, I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah is a study, okay? He is a person who has studied and understands that to view the face of God is not where a mortal wants to be. To see the face of God, to see God, I kind of think I'm supposed to die. And he has in this brain, I don't know that I really belong here. It's kind of like when you show up in an event and you're underdressed. 
Or, or last week, I um, attempted vainly to wash my pickup truck. And I attempted in vain. <laughs> I wasn't vainly washing my pickup truck. Those of you that know my attitudes about vehicles know that I don't have a lot of vanity about my vehicles. At any rate, I attempted to, to wash my pickup truck, and I didn't rinse it real well. So once it dried, it kind of looked like you had t- taken marshmallow paste and like spread it all over the side, okay, you know, because you didn't rinse all the junk off. And so it just looks gross. And I had to drive and pick up pizza because we always eat pizza on Saturday nights from Rafferty's. And, and I was like super embarrassed, which was an odd feeling for me about the thing that I was driving. That's what Isaiah feels like. I'm underdressed. The truck didn't get rinsed. I don't belong here. Now, what's intriguing about this is that many people in this room, myself included, would argue of all of the people in the Bible that I know and all of the people that I've ever met in my life Isaiah would probably be one of the guys who could stand next to God and I'd be like, yeah, that's where he belongs. I mean, it's not like the prophets were shrinking violets, okay? These were people chosen by God to consistently deliver truth to power. We might make the argument of all of the people in the nation of Israel at this time, Isaiah would be the one who is exempt from this. That, that Isaiah should be able to make the argument, no, I can stand before a holy God. I've been chosen by God. But Isaiah does the one thing that the nation as a whole is incapable of doing. Confronted with this image of God. He says, I'm I'm guilty. I'm I'm part of the problem. I'm in a deficit state. Another way of looking at it, Isaiah was willing to come face to face with the sin that exists in his life. Are we? Up against the reality of who God is, Isaiah realizes the trouble that he is in. He knows he can't hang in this room. I always love it when some human, especially and usually a male, denies that he has any problems or has any role in a given conflict. I'm kind of like, come on, man. Just quit protesting. Have the guts to say, you know, I was wrong. Not I was wrong because you made me be wrong. (laughs) If you can find an excuse for your wrong behavior, that in and of itself is wrong. I feel like for two weeks in a row, I'm doing as much marriage counseling up here as anything. (laughs) Don't be big when you get angry. Remember from last week? Be small if you're going to get angry. Okay? Be willing to admit you're wrong. Be willing to say, yeah, you got me red-handed. I'm wrong. When the time's right, will you forgive me? 
Don't necessarily demand forgiveness in the moment because maybe we haven't realized everything that needs to be forgiven. But at any rate, Isaiah doesn't have that problem. And I would argue Isaiah hasn't done anything wrong. But Isaiah knows that no one is innocent. And, and, and confronted with the profoundly distinct nature of God. He knows he is underdressed. He knows the truck ain't washed. He knows he can't hang with this crowd. And so rather than trying to say, it's not my fault, it's someone else's fault, he says, I don't belong here. I I really don't belong here. I, I have no standing to be standing before a holy God. And seriously, if you want to find a pathway out of the morass that you're in, own your own stuff. Come before a holy God and say, I, I have no right to stand before you, but, but, but this is on me. If you want to have a relationship with God, if you want to work with God, if you want to honor God, if you want to be on God's side, which really, who wouldn't want to be on God's side? Especially after this picture, but who wouldn't want to be on God's side? Know that something has to change and it's not God. It's us. We have to be willing to come before a holy God and say, I can't hang with you. Woe is me. I need you. And certainly if the text ended there, it would tell us something about God and maybe question whether or not God was worth following. But the text doesn't end there. Verse 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Getting right with God is is coming before God and God doesn't stand there and say, You know something? You're right. You're an absolute idiot. Whap. No, God does what God can only do for the repentant heart. He heals, he restores, he takes away the earned result of a life that does not follow God. Forgiveness. On the ready. This picture of, uh, of the notion of fire. Seraph literally means fiery ones. Fire from the altar, these dancing flames, these burning embers, a living, breathing, moving thing. Unpredictable especially the larger that it gets, it can create its own weather systems. Maybe it's why watching a campfire can be so absolutely mesmerizing because the fire is alive. The seraph, the fiery ones, takes fire from the altar. There's this purifying aspect, the the burning away of the temporal, the taking away of the imperfect, this picture of what God does in the life of a penitent heart. 
taking away our guilt, taking away our sin. Sin that's a result of the lives that we've lived. Something that needs to be atoned for. That when something bad has happened over here, something good needs to happen over here. That when sin has happened over here, payment needs to be made. When, when something evil has happened, reparation. When something evil has happened, atonement. It's fixing the problem. It's not saying the sin didn't exist. It's saying that the penalty for the sin has been paid by some other means. And certainly because we live after Calvary, after the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we understand that the death of Christ pays the penalty of sin. But also know that it's not just the death of Christ, it's the death of self. It's the death of me thinking I can do it on my own apart from God that seals the work of Jesus in my life. The death of Christ, the redemption of Jesus Christ, stands at the ready. God is willing at the moment that the penitent heart, the repentant heart comes to him. God is ready at the moment to grant that forgiveness. But it is, it is a relationship. It is also the death of self. The death of me thinking I can do it on my own. I wonder, commentators wonder whether or not this was an actual physical experience or whether it was a dream or... I think it was real. I think there's these tangible reminders for Isaiah the rest of his life, the memory of this event, perhaps even the smell. The smell so distinct of burning flesh. Because that's what happens when a red-hot ember touches flesh. You have, and, and the scar, this isn't getting splashed with warm water. It touches you and you will have a scar when a burning hot ember that's in excess of what? Six, seven hundred, eight. Six, seven hundred degrees Fahrenheit touches your skin, you're going to have a mark. And Isaiah, for the rest of his life, proudly bearing the tangible, physical reminder that he was forgiven. It's an amazing picture. It is a profoundly different distinct set of verses. Some of you here today are thinking you've missed part of verse 3. You'd be accurate. The first part of verse 3 will get additional playtime later in the Bible, in the revelation of John. That gives support to the idea that Isaiah might have more in common with, with apocalyptic literature, the revelation of John, than it does with an Old Testament prophetic vibe. And it would be centuries later that a gentleman by the name of Reginald Haber, an Anglican pastor, 
in the early 1800s who would put verse 3 to words, to music. What's intriguing about that is that at the time in the Anglican church, it was too radical to sing songs with melody lines. Too cutting edge, too contemporary, not sacred enough. But Reginald would incorporate these words in a revolutionary way by singing them in church. What we have in Isaiah chapter 6 is something that is profoundly distinct from how God is described anywhere else in the Bible up to this time. The picture. Close your eyes with me. The, the picture. See if you could get it in your brain. The Lord filling the temple. Uh, imagine what it would be like the smoke. Imagine the setting. And then you hear the seraphim singing. 